Thank you so much for uh, having me here. Thank you for that interesting introduction. I, uh, you know, Brother Hovick, you said that you were here six months ago, I think, or maybe you said you were here, he was here six months ago. And I know we spoke before, but I was thinking, okay, I was here six years ago or something like this. And so I thought, you know, I, I did a pretty fine job. I know I wasn't great six years ago, but I was like, I'm sure Lauren's going to call me or email me and say, hey, can we book you for next year? So that year passes, second year passes, third year passes, fourth year passes. I'm like, I'm taking a different project. So I started translating the Bible. (laughs) But my favorite part, or I think the most interesting part about this introduction was the kangaroo. That was surprising. Kangaroo. I'm afraid of kangaroos, actually. We were supposed to go to, well, one of the countries we were considering and going to was Australia. And as a kid, I don't know if this is true or not, so nothing against Australians. But I heard that in Australia, kangaroos just like roam the streets. And I was terrified. I was praying to come to America for that reason. And then uh, yesterday, Kelly Hazelrig, I guess she works for EWG also, right? So she messaged me and she said that I heard your favorite animal was kangaroo. And then she said, and guess what? The nickname for kangaroos is Joey. And I thought, this is terrible. This is terrible. And not only is it terrible because my name is Joe. Nobody calls me Joey. You're not allowed to call me Joey, by the way. But it's terrible because I changed my name or I added the name Joseph in America. I paid money to add the name Joseph so that people would not make fun of my name. My name is Yosef, right? I, Yosef. And you guys probably know this, but my name is I, Yosef. And when we came to America, it was just a disaster when people tried to pronounce my name. I was called Esau. I was called Esau. I was called Isis. It was, you know, then they started calling me the short name, Ayo. Yo. And then, yo, yo. <laughs> I got to do something. So literally, I'm not joking. Ten years ago, I went, when I was renewing my passport, I said I would like to add a middle name and make my middle name Joseph because it's technically the same name in Russian as Joseph. And so I added the middle name Joseph. I paid money for that so that it would be formal and official. Thank you very much, Kelly. I will be changing my name next time. <laughs> But it is really a blessing and a privilege to be here, to study the Word with you together, to open it, uh, and to look at how deep it is and how much there is in it. And before we do that, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to bless this time as we look into the words that He has left for us to study. Lord, we're so grateful that You are our God. We're so grateful that we know that You are our God that you revealed yourself to us from the beginning, throughout time, Lord, and even to the end times. Lord, we thank you that you give us health and strength and endurance and a love for your word. Lord, I thank you that you keep on sanctifying us and working in our lives, that you never abandon us, that you're always taking care of us and you're always involved and always working in our lives. Lord, we praise you for that. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together now 
to open your word, to look into it, to look at some of the specifics and to see how glorious and how awesome you are, our God. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time and that you would be glorified through this time. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior and our God, amen. Well, we're going through Genesis 1, and I uh, know that Paul Twist came, and then last week Abner came, and Abner delivered an introduction to all of Genesis, and he showed how uh, important it is to study the beginnings because it helps you understand everything, right? The present and the future. And he mentioned the example about the dragon. Why is the dragon mentioned in Revelation? And so he explained that, well, the dragon is mentioned because we have the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. It's the same serpentine animal. And uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 actually says this explicitly. It says that the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. You can even ask a more general question, why do we study the beginnings? And that's because it explains to us everything that is happening, right? We have the new heaven and the new earth mentioned in Revelation at the end of time. Well, why? Why mention the new heaven and the new earth? Well, because in the beginning, God created the first heaven and the first earth, and then the earth was tarnished by the fall, so God will create the new heaven and the new earth, which will not be tarnished by sin. You can ask even a more general question. Who does all of this activity? Who unifies all of this from beginning to end? And Revelation chapter 10, verse 5 answers this question for us. It says that it will be the one who created the heaven and the earth and the things in it and the water and the sea and the things in it. So the end of time links directly to the creation and to the beginning of time. But understanding the beginning is not only a truth that relates to you know, a distant uh, past or a distant future, it also relates to our immediate present. Understanding the beginning teaches us how we must live this life today. And the principle here is simple. Because God's character, which is revealed at the beginning of creation, because of this character, we are to submit to and we are to glorify God. And Revelation 4.11 says this as well. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. If you reject this truth that God created the world, then you will fail to give God the proper glory that he deserves. And this is exactly what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 1, a passage that is familiar to us. Paul said that when you look at creation, obviously which begins in Genesis 1 and 2, when you look at creation, then you will see the attributes of God. Paul says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they the people are without excuse. 
And this is exactly what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 when we study these passages. We see God and we see the attributes of God. And as we see the attributes of God, there's only one proper response that we can have. And that is to glorify God. So let's look at Genesis 1 and 2. And I want to point to seven characteristics about God that are clearly seen in these chapters. So go with me to Genesis 1 and 2. When we look at these chapters, like Paul said, we see the attributes of God. And the first attribute or the first characteristic, an obvious one, is that God is the God of existence. God is the God of existence. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. God was never created. God never did not exist. God always was. It clearly, the passage clearly, explicitly, it unambiguously makes clear for us, in the beginning, God. It assumes that God always was. A number of years ago, I read a book by Richard Dawkins. It's called The God Delusion. The God Delusion. I don't recommend the book. You should not read it. In this book, he argues that there is no God. And he tries to persuade everybody who reads that book that there is no God. And in his preface to this book, he writes this. If this book works as I intend, religious readers, which is you and me, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. Well, when I read the book and I put it down... (laughs) The first thing I said is I shouldn't have read this book. But when I read it, I said, how ironic. How ironic that the only reason that Dawkins is even able to say that there is no God is because there is a God. Right? If there were no God, there would be no Dawkins. As much as Dawkins hates it, the fact that he exists is evidence to the fact that God exists because Dawkins was created in the image of God. God created him. And when we think about this, Genesis 1 and 2 presents this very truth that God is and that he always was. And this also directly corresponds to God's name, Yahweh, the personal name Yahweh. In Exodus 3, Moses asks God, what is your name? And God says, I am who I am. I'm the ever-existing one. There's no beginning. There's no middle. There's no end to me. I simply am. That's who our God is, and that is his name. And this is what Jesus meant when he said to the Pharisees in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. There's no beginning to Jesus. He wasn't created. He always was. And this is a truth that we must not forget or neglect or take for granted in some way. This is a truth that must keep us humble. It must remind us who we are and who God is. Remember Job? When Job was suffering and he was upset with God because of the nature and the quality and the just the level of of suffering that he was going through, When he challenged God, what was the first question that God said to Job? To show him that Job is not God, but that God is God. 
God said to him in Job 38.4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He went to the very beginning. Where were you in the beginning? In the beginning, God was. But where were you? The answer is obvious. You weren't where God was. In fact, you simply weren't. That's where Job was. He wasn't. God was, and you weren't. And so when Job recognizes this, he ultimately says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I respond to you? He says to God. I place my hand over my mouth. And this must be our response as well. We must actively remember the fact that God was and that God is and that God will be always. And on the one hand, this must humble us. On the other hand, this should encourage us because God will always be there when we come to him. He will always hear us. He will always answer. He will always be involved in our lives. That's because God is the God of existence. Secondly, God is the God of creation. The text says here, in the beginning, God created. Abner pointed out to you last time that the only person in the Bible who creates is God and God alone. People make things, but God creates. The word create is used only with reference to God. And the difference is that people have to use the things that God creates in order to make things. But only God creates. Genesis 1.1, God creates the heavens and the earth. In 121, God creates the sea monsters and every living creature. In 127, God creates man and woman. In Exodus 34.10 and Numbers 16.30, God creates miracles. He makes miracles happen. In Psalm 51.10, God creates a clean heart within us. And in Isaiah 65.17, in the future, God will create the new heaven and the new earth. And when you look at these chapters, notice that everything that God creates is good. Everything that he creates is good. God created light in verse 3, and then in verse 4 it says that he saw that it was good. God separated the water from the earth in verses 9 and 10, and God saw that it was good. God created the animals of the earth, and God saw that it was good. Everything that God does is good. In fact, it's very good. Because when God looks at all of his creation, he says in verse 31, it was very good. Now you can say, but wait a minute. God created man and God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And this is true. God did say this. But then, to all of you, when God created woman, it was complete and it was very good. And in fact, it was so good that Paul uses the relationship between man and woman as a symbol to represent Christ and the church in Ephesians chapter 5. Everything that God creates is very good. And because God is our creator, we have to remember this proactively, not just passively, but proactively remember and worship God that he is our creator. And we must glorify him for this. And 
This is a command. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. And this is precisely what our society is trying to forget, trying to erase, trying to force their minds to, to abandon, to persuade themselves that God is not the Creator. And this is why Paul says that this world is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness in Romans 1.18. So to believe evolution, to believe that God did not create us, it's not simply false, it's not simply wrong, it's actually sin because this contradicts what the Scriptures explicitly command us to do to remember your Creator. Third, a third characteristic, God is the God of sovereignty, or we can say God is the God of supremacy. And here we notice that all creation submits to God. Nothing disobeys. In verse 3, for example, it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. The light didn't contemplate whether it should or shouldn't be. It didn't consider that question, to be or not to be. It was. Immediately, the minute that God said it, light was. When God says something, it becomes so. And six times it says in Genesis 1, in Genesis 1 when God speaks, the text says that it was so. In verse 7, God made the expanse and then separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so, just as God said, so it was. Verse 11, God caused vegetation to grow, and it was so. Verse 24, God speaks living creatures into existence, and it was so. Verse 30, God gives the plants as food for humans and animals, and it was so. Everything that God commands becomes so. And this characteristic actually appears throughout the Bible. It's not Genesis, just Genesis 1 and 2. You know, we can take Jonah just as an example, a book that we're going through in Sojourners. Uh, when we look at Jonah, we see that God is a God of sovereignty and supremacy. And he makes that manifest in that book. God hurls a great wind on the sea in the book of Jonah, and it obeys, and it causes a storm. God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah, and it obeys. God appoints a plant to grow, and it obeys, and it makes shade for Jonah. God appoints a worm to eat the plant, and it obeys, and the plant dies. God appoints a scorching wind to oppress Jonah, and it obeys so that Jonah nearly faints and loses consciousness. No matter what God does, no matter what he commands, it happens. The earth submits to him. You know, you can take Jesus, go to the New Testament, you can take Jesus uh, on the boat in the storm in Mark 4. The storm is throwing the boat around. The disciples are terrified that they're going to die, so they call Jesus and Jesus speaks to the wind and to the sea. He says, silence, be still. And the text says it becomes perfectly calm. How is it that the sea and the storm become silent, that they obey Christ? Well, Jesus created them. So, of course, they obeyed him. Whether it's Genesis 1 or 2, or any other part of the Old Testament, or the New Testament, God demonstrates his sovereignty, and he demonstrates his supremacy over everything. Fourth, 
God is the God of life. God is the God of life. When we read through Genesis 1 and 2, we immediately see the fact that God creates life. All the sea animals, the land creatures that God created, he gave them all life. And when God created humans, he gives them life. The first time that the word life appears in the Bible is actually in Genesis 1.30. It says that all the plants that God created, he has given them to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that creeps on the earth, which has life. I have given every green plant for food to these creatures. So every being that God creates, animals and humans, God creates them and God gives them life. But animals and humans are not the same. And this becomes absolutely clear when we see how God creates humans. In Genesis 1.26, we get a general statement that God created humans in his image. God says there in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And when we look at this passage, we see that the word life is not used here. It's simply implied that God made them living and that he gave them life. But go to Genesis 2 and verse 7. Genesis 2 verse 7. And there we get a more detailed description of how God creates mankind. In Genesis 2 7 it says, Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. God personally breathed into the creation of mankind that he created the breath of life so that he would have life. Listen to Job 33.4, where Job says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Only you and I can say this, that God breathed into mankind because mankind is the only creation that God personally breathed into and gave life in that way. And then we can go down to Genesis 3, verse 20, just a little bit lower, and there we see that the woman becomes the source of our life because all of the earth, all of the population now comes through her. Genesis 3.20 says, Now the man called his name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. But here's a question. Why did he call her Eve? What does Eve have to do with life? Why not call her Elizabeth? Or Carol? Or Kelly? Why Eve? Because the word Eve is related to the word life. He called her name life. And if you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you will see that her name there is Zoe. Zoe? Well, Zoe is the Greek word for life. So in Hebrew, you have Adam and Eve... In Greek, you have Adam and Zoe. But the overall point here is that God created life and that God is the God of life. In fact, the only mention of death in these 
chapters is God warning man not to do anything in order to die. In chapter 2, verse 16, after God creates man, God says to him, from any tree of the garden you may surely eat. And then verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Death is contrary to God. Death is the enemy of God. And God will ultimately destroy death. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that after God destroys all his enemies, the last enemy to be abolished is death. And then at the very end, Revelation 21, 4 says that he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. Why will this happen? Because God is the God of life. Death defines the devil. And Hebrews 2.14 says that in this fallen world, Satan has the power of death. But God is the God of life. And this is why Christ is raised from the dead to life. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15.22, just a couple of verses later there, it says, For as in Adam all die... So in Christ, all will be made alive. God is the God of life from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. That is his nature. That is his character. This is why we as believers do not fear death. Because our God is the God of life. He has power over death. He has the power of life. And that's why we say that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not fear. It's not loss. It's gain. Because when we die, we enter into internal life with the God of life. Our God is a God of life. Fifth. God is the God of holiness. Related to God being the God of life, we also see in these chapters that God is the God of holiness. Holiness results in life, and unholiness results in death. And we're familiar with the passages that God is holy throughout the Bible. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, God commands Moses to say to the Israelites, you shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, Am holy. Or we can think about Isaiah chapter 6, that famous passage where the angels are saying over and over, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God demonstrates His holiness throughout the Scriptures by commanding us to live in accordance with His perfect will, in accordance with His perfect character. This is the point of Matthew 5.48. Jesus says there, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is Perfect. In other words, we must submit to God and we must not sin. If we sin, we reveal that we're not holy and then we die. And we see in the character of God at the very beginning where God commands Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that Adam would not die. In Genesis 1.15, God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden and he gives him this command. From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, 
But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. God is showing in this command that he is perfectly holy and that he is perfectly just. just. He can't tolerate unholiness. Obey God and live, disobey God and die. And this is the point of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God calls us to be holy. One of the books that has influenced my life more than any other book outside of the Bible is a book called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. But when you take that book and you open it to the first chapter, you will see that the first chapter is called Sin. So why does J.C. Ryle start his book on holiness in a discussion about sin? Well, here's his answer. He says, He that wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and the solemn subject of sin. And it actually makes sense then. To be holy, you must hate sin. And if you want to see Christ, you must be holy. This is the point of Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue holiness or pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. If you are not holy, you will not see God because God is holy. And from the very outset of Revelation, in the Garden of Eden, God shows to us that he does not tolerate sin because he is holy. As soon as God introduces himself into the story, you know that God is holy. And this is also a lesson for us. As soon as we are introduced into any context, any group of people, it must be clear that we seek to be holy like God is holy. This can't be a characteristic in us that is ambiguous or that's unclear about us. It must be obvious in our lives that we are seeking to be holy. Sixth, God is the God of complex unity. God is the God of complex unity or the Trinity as we know it. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God is a complex unity. Now, we know that God is one. There's, uh, we, we accept this truth and we embrace this truth and we worship God as one. You can think about Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. There is no question about the fact that we worship one God. But at the same time, even in Paul's statement here, we see that God is a complex unity because Paul refers to God the Father, and he refers to God the Son, Jesus Christ, as one God. And when we look at Genesis 1, we see this very same truth. In Genesis 1.26, God is speaking and God is deliberating about creating mankind, and he says this, Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
the complex unity of God comes out here when God uses these plural pronouns, us and our. And he's referring to himself as one God. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then when he actually does create mankind, Moses says, and God created him in his own image. Again, it's singular all of a sudden. In the image of God, he, God, created him. You look at this and you at least wonder, how is it that God says us, and he says our, and yet God is one? Well, the answer is that God is a complex unity. He is a tri-unity. He's the Trinity. And this isn't the only place in the Bible where this appears, in the Old Testament where this appears. You go to Genesis 11, when the people are trying to build the Tower of Babel. God is displeased with this, of course. And so in Genesis eleven seven it says, or God, the, the one God, he says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. Genesis 18 and 19, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. He destroys it with fire and brimstone. And in Genesis 19, 24, it describes this act in the following way. It says, and Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. Yahweh rained fire from Yahweh. Are there two gods? Well, no. There are two persons mentioned here, but there is one God. And as we see these cases, we see that God is a complex unity. And then when we go to the New Testament, we begin to understand this more precisely as we see that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one. And we recognize this triunity, and we recognize this trinity, and we worship God as the triune God. Now, the implication of this is that because of the triunity of God, we have an example of perfect unity and perfect love. In John 17, 21, Jesus prays for his disciples and for all those who believe in him, which includes you and me here. Jesus prays and Jesus says this. He prays that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Us, just like God said in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. Christ prays that there would be love and unity between the believers, just as there is love and unity between God the Father and God the Son. And in this perfect triunity of the Godhead, we see the perfect love and unity as an example of how we are to express this love and unity. And this perfect love and unity is ultimately what we see in the perfect reign of God at the end of time where God the Father and God the Son rule over the, the earth. Revelation eleven fifteen it says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The only reason that God the Father and God the Son with the power of the Holy Spirit that He's able to rule over one kingdom in peace is because of this perfect unity and perfect love. 
Every other effort that we have seen throughout history in in an attempt to rule over a kingdom, it always ends up in warfare. But God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit will reign in unity because of this perfect love and unity that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have with one another. And this perfect triunity is a characteristic of God that we see at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, at the creation of the world, and then throughout the scriptures until we see it in its full glory when we get to Revelation, when, when the triune God reigns as one God. And seventh, our final characteristic of God in Genesis 1 and 2, God is the God of rest. God is the God of rest. After God created the universe and all that is in the universe, it says God rested. Genesis 2 verses 1 and 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And on the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. But you will say, God doesn't need rest. Why is God resting? Well, he rested not because he was tired in some way from work. He rested in the sense that he simply stopped working. The word rest means to cease from working in this passage. And when he stopped working, it says that he blessed and he sanctified the seventh day, or literally he set it apart as holy. So unlike the six days of work, God devoted the seventh day specifically to celebrating all the work that he had done and all the work that he had completed. These verses repeat the word complete two times to emphasize the fact that God was done with his work and now he was giving attention to this completed work and now he was enjoying this completed state of the work. Now, the rest that we read about, the rest of this seventh day was so precious to God, was so precious in his sight that God determined that the people of God must enjoy this rest as well. So to do this, God first gave the Israelites the command to keep the Sabbath, to enjoy this rest, this cessation from work and the focus on God. So in Exodus 20, verse 8, God commands, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy as one of the Ten Commandments. Then in verse 9, it continues to explain that God gave this command to the Israelites to set this day aside and to focus on God, specifically to experience what God was experiencing when he rested after creating all his work. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 9 says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God, In it you shall not do any work. And then verse 11, For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Just like God rested, the Israelites are also to rest and to focus and to enjoy God. Later on in Deuteronomy 5, this command is repeated, and it gives an additional practical application to the meaning of this commandment, that the Israelites are to rest and to focus on God because 
God brought them out of Egypt and gave them rest from work, from being slaves in Egypt. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, this commandment was so important. To focus on God was so important that any violation of this commandment would result in death. And Exodus 31 talks about that. But the Sabbath was not, the Sabbath, I should say, was intended to serve man. Man was not intended to be enslaved to the Sabbath. And this is Jesus' point in Mark 2.27. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So God creates the Sabbath for the Israelites to experience the rest that he was experiencing when he finished creating the universe. But secondly, because God wanted the Israelites to have this rest, God determined to give the Israelites rest by bringing them into the promised land and giving them rest in that promised land. And the language here is slightly different when it talks about the promised land, but the concept and the idea is the same idea. Joshua 1.13 says, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you, saying, Yahweh your God gives you rest and will give you this land. God desired for the Israelites to have even a glimpse of rest, a glimpse of peace, a glimpse of stability and calm. So he was bringing them into the promised land so that they would experience this. The problem with all of this is that the people couldn't keep the Sabbath. When the people went into the promised land, they couldn't rest the way that they were supposed to rest, the way God intended because of our sin. So neither Moses nor Joshua could ultimately provide this rest that God is referring to. And so the the third thing that um, we see God promising with rest is in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews returns to this promise of God and he says that this rest can be experienced only in Jesus, the Messiah. In Hebrews 4, verses 8 through 10, it says this, the author of Hebrew writes, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God still, for the one who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his works. So the author of Hebrews brings the two concepts together. The one is of the rest on the Sabbath day that God enjoyed. And then the other is of the rest by entering into the land that Joshua tried to give to the Israelites, which God did promise. And the author of Hebrews says that only Jesus can provide this ultimate and this eternal rest. And if you think about Jesus, this is exactly what Jesus said. He said that he is the all-encompassing source of rest. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. From the very beginning of creation, God demonstrates that God is the God of rest. 
And not only does God experience this himself, he intends for us to experience this rest as well. This is the God who is revealed in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and as well as throughout the rest of the scriptures. When you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you see all of this about God, and you then see why Paul says in Romans 1 that all mankind is without excuse, and that the rejection of God is the suppression of truth. Because since the creation of the world, God's attributes and his characteristics are clearly seen, according to Paul. And as we just saw right now. And so the only acceptable response to this is to submit to God and it's to glorify God. And let's go to prayer right now and let's worship our Father. Lord God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in the scriptures, that you revealed yourself in Genesis 1 and 2 for who you are, how you function, how you love us, how you created us, and Lord, how you want us to experience, to be in this experience of a perfect relationship with you. Lord, I pray that these things would affect our lives, that they would focus our gaze on you, and that we would worship you because of this. Lord, we thank you and we love you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.